Um, our speaker today is uh, Junia Gatti, who is a uh, Gata, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Minnesota, um, and a visiting Rashan scholar this year. Uh, I'd like to welcome her and you. And her, the title of her talk is "Theorizing Among the Ruins: An Existential Perspective on Political Violence." Junia. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, thank you for being here, and thanks to the Merchant Center for allowing me to be here. Okay. Um, this is being a very productive year and a very um, intellectually vibrant one, uh, thanks to the center. Today, I would like to talk to you about what lies at the center of the dissertation I am writing. Uh, and I do this with some trepidation because it constitutes the daily bread for many of you here. I'll be talking about uh, political violence. I will first tell you about the qualms I have with how the question is addressed by political theorists and about the possibility of theorizing violence in the first place. Then I will suggest a different way of thinking about it by looking at the work of German philosopher Karl Jaspers. The dissertation was motivated by dissatisfaction with the way in which political theorists, especially contemporary ones in this part of the world, were looking, uh, were addressing, or rather not addressing, the question of violence. Some theorists, like most famously people like John Rawls or Jürgen Habermas, focus on notions of reasonable disagreement. They begin their theorizing with the requirement that violence be checked at the door. Others do celebrate agonal forms of politics and vigorous contestation, but understand the agon as the place where contestation never quite reaches the, the stage of massacre or torture or genocide, or even just plain violence. Now, I really don't want to give you the impression that I think this kind of work is worthless or trivial or uninteresting. Actually, I had a an epiphany of sorts last year listening to Clarissa Hayward's uh, at the um, presenting her paper on the mall at the Midwest Political Science Association. And I remember seeing clearly the drawbacks of an exclusive focus on this ever-present threat of violence. An obsession of violence uh, with violence surely is often detrimental to democracy and to many other political ideals, uh, as we have learned only too well, I think, in the last four years or so. Yet violence is indeed an ever-present threat. Uh, here, and especially in contexts where there is no central power to enforce order, um, whether in countries torn by civil war or in the international real. So it cannot simply be written off our concerns or be left in the hands of politicians as an instrument of propaganda. The question is whether theory has any business engaging violence on its own turf, whether it can speak to violence. Anna Arendt actually wrote that this is not possible, and she is one of the theorists in the 20th century uh, that has probably taken uh, violence more seriously. She writes in On Revolution that where absolute violence rules, and she has specifically totalitarianism in mind, where, where absolute violence rules, politics, and hence political theory, is silent. I believe there is clearly a sense in which Arendt is right, but then the question is, 
can we leave it at that? How can we step up for, out of the grip of absolute violence if not by thinking through political alternatives, if not by theorizing violence and possible responses to it? And this is, by the way, what Arendt herself does in books like Origins of Totalitarianism, Eichmann in Jerusalem, and on violence. If we turn back to the past for inspiration on what I call thinking among ruins, we hardly find compelling models for taking violence seriously without yielding to a celebration of it. Critical theorists, I think, have had a tendency to divide themselves into um, distinct camps. On the one hand stand those who try to devise a just organization of society so that the use of violence would not be necessary. Thinkers as different and as distant as Plato, Locke, Rousseau can be read as doing this. Political theory is for them about making sure that violence will not happen or determining what kind of violence or measure of violence we can tolerate. They theorize, uh, follow me with a metaphor, um, before ruins or around ruins. And I think with due specifications, probably even uh, theories like Hobbes and Marx can be um, made to stand with this bunch. And today, the legacy of those theorizing around and before ruins remains in the preoccupation with legitimate violence, the determination of the conditions under which the use of violence is acceptable. This is one bunch, this is one camp. On the other side stand theorists who argue for continuity and even some kind of blurring uh, between politics and violence. Among them are often writers who saw themselves as more um, political actors than theorists, like Karl von Clausewitz or Niccolò Machiavelli, or theorists who have grown impatient with the excessive faith in um, reason expressed by the Enlightenment. Uh, like Friedrich Nietzsche or Karl Schmitt. And actually another uh, fellow for whom both descriptions are true, Adolf Hitler. These writers saw and accepted ruins as an indelible and almost defining mark of political action. In fact, they took ruins as such an integral part of politics that they hardly expressed any normative concern for them. So again, with the stretching the metaphor, we may perhaps consider the theorizing as theorizing on top of ruins. The legacy of the theorizing on top of ruins to contemporary political theory is fairly complex, and um, I cannot really summarize it here. I'll just say that many contemporary readers of Nietzsche, for example, argue that the modern quest for the line dividing legitimate and illegitimate violence harbors itself a violent potential, can be violent itself. And they have offered brilliant studies of how modern practices, like a particular use of language or a particular arrangement of space, reinforce violence of this sort. All these authors, however, whether they focus on the legitimacy of violence or on its flourishing on the ground of modernity, spend fairly little time on the question of the experience of violence, as lived by the individuals it affects directly or indirectly and what these experiences can tell us about possibilities to interrupt the violence. <coughs> Some have recently opened a way toward um, concerns of this sort. Judith Clark, for example, offered the reinterpretation of liberalism as the political theory most concerned with putting cruelty first. 
and considering cruelty the worst among evils. Similarly, Richard Rorty has privileged the focus on the reduction of cruelty as the guiding thread of his ethical theory. The most interesting insight in this wave of interest for cruelty, uh, I think, is the existential turn it suggests. Violence becomes embodied in the concrete experience of concrete human beings, becomes personalized, and therefore, importantly, contextualized. And this change of perspective, I argue, carries important implications for the ways in which the violence is addressed. My goal in the dissertation is not simply to argue that violence has been glossed over and it shouldn't have been, but also that beginning with a core concern for the experience of violence allows for a reinterpretation of central concepts in political theory with a view to making them and political theory in general more relevant in violent times, and some of these concepts that I try to reinterpret with an eye um, uh, for violence are guilt, communication, and freedom. I will not talk about them uh, today, though. I offer a theoretical framework which allows violence, its complexities, and its ambiguities to take center stage, and at the same time conceptualize paths to the interruption of violence that are grounded on the centrality of violence itself. It is by attending to the experience of violence that paths away from it often open up. And again, I focus on notions of guilt, communication, and freedom as different paths of this sort. All three are read as realities profoundly tied to violence, indeed born from it, although in dialectic tension with it. I also address in a more empirical chapter the ways in which this personalization of violence, of the experience of violence, can be key even in the study of highly institutionalized efforts against violence, such as international criminal courts. My theoretical framework is influenced by the work of an existentialist philosopher of the 20th century, Carl Jaspers. He offers specific theoretical coordinates that have proved quite uh, useful in the navigation of my question. And I've broken them up in three. First, Violence is constitutive of human existence. It's not just a sleep of reason, a temporary break in order. Rather, it tends to be a status quo from which reason has to unceasingly struggle, sense, courage, and responsibility. Two, because it is constitutive of human existence, violence is not peculiar to a specific time or a specific place. However, there are important differences in how human beings interpret their experience of violence according to time and place, which need to be attended to. <coughs> this tension between universality and specificity is a crucial element in the dissertation. Although constitutive, and I'm at my third point, although constitutive of human existence, violence also has an extraordinary power to elicit resistance and rebellions against, a rebellion against itself. It often appears senseless, not only to those privileged or in a position of power, but also to the immediate victims, perpetrators, and bystanders. Now, before I turn to expanding on these three points, let me briefly point to the fact that an investigation of the experience of violence implies a peculiar understanding of theory, one that I'm sympathetic to, and that Hannah Arendt, to return to her, um, Arendt was Jasper's student and friend, 
what she has called thinking what we are doing. Theorizing means thinking what we are doing. So she shied away from the notion of theory as abstraction and um, a focus on generalities and universals. It is what I call a posteriori theorizing. I don't ask under what conditions the use of violence is legitimate. As I said, many authors have done this really well in the past. This is not where the work most needs to be done, I think. I rather ask, now that we are in this place of tragedy and massacre, what can we, go, what can we do to get ourselves out? There's clearly a level of practical policy, politics that must be involved here, the level of diplomacy negotiations of various types and domestic and international law. And there is also an important role to be played by political science beside theory, with the empirical study, for example, of past conflicts, what worked to move from violence to politics and what didn't. But I want to deal with this question as a theorist in a rent sense, as someone who is not only concerned with the study of regularities, but also of possibilities, what may, should happen, what could break those regularities and affect change. Now, theory, with its centuries-long experience in thinking about the human condition and the passions that move individual beings, is, I think, well equipped for an analysis of the micro-foundations, what we can call micro-foundations, the micro-conditions that facilitate a movement from violence to alternative forms of political exchange, for understanding what makes human beings be with one another without killing one another which makes possible and consolidates whatever agreements have been made or are made at the macro-diplomatic level. And this is important because it's exactly the aspect that interests me the most about um, political violence, which is what violence does to individuals, its effects on the living experience of concrete human beings, and how this concrete experience can be turned into a force against violence. Existentialism helped me by bringing the level of analysis back to the individual, this micro level. Not the individual as we know him, uh, him actually being the relevant pronoun, uh, from existentialism as a rational, from liberalism, sorry, as the rational autonomous calculator of advantages and disadvantages, as naturally social or naturally antisocial. But rather the individual as free, immensely complex entity, but also fundamentally embedded in historical and local contexts and webs of attachments. This is, to use an interesting expression coined by John Keane, my way uh, of democratizing violence, I guess, this more extended look at what violence does beyond the macro level. Okay, let me now turn to a key elements in Jasper's philosophy, which constitutes, I think, a bridge um, between the two traditions of thought that I've delineated um, uh, earlier. One neglecting the full horror of violence, the other resigns or resigns or even enthusiastic about it. This element is Jasper's concept of boundary situation. Boundary situations are, for Jasper's, situations that humanity cannot avoid. Specifically, he lists them as, one, the sheer fact of always being in situation, suffering, death, struggle, force, and guilt. 
we may think of them as the dystopic common ground of humanity, what everyone shares um, and may not be too excited about sharing, actually. When confronted with them, the intellect, with its need to find definite and reassuring answers, is confused. We can only live through boundary situations with the aid of reason, which Jaspers conceives of, like many post-enlightenment thinkers, as a more comprehensive faculty, including um, emotions and so on. Although they often are isolating experiences, these boundary situations also have a strong relational aspect. And I will try to make the most of these aspects to show their political significance. In the talk, I will focus on the boundary situations of force, struggle, and suffering, since they I had to cut something, and they are the ones I think that best illustrate how existentialism serves me in this quest for taking violence seriously without yielding to it. <clears throat> so first, um, I'm going to actually first talk about force as a boundary situation, and then explain exactly how um, what boundary situations illuminate and then go back to uh, the, uh, the second one because I think it's helpful to bookend the theory um, with the applied instances. First boundary situation, force. Jaspers identifies it as boundary situation in his 1958 book, The Future of Mankind, which is a reflection on the threat of the nuclear holocaust and what we can do to, um, to avoid it. This is one of his most political books. Jaspers was well, actually started out as a psychiatrist and then became a philosopher in the first uh, half of the 20th century. And then after um, the end of World War II, he began to be very engaged in more strictly political questions. So he wrote on uh, the question of German guilt. Uh, he wrote on the state of the university uh, on Europe and on the question of the nuclear holocaust. Um, in The Future of Mankind, Jaspers defines politics as the association with force. Yet, he notes, the whole seriousness of force, and here I'm quoting him, as an ineluctable boundary situation of human existence is usually lost sight of in political discussion. And here I'm, I'm trying to give, you, to give you a sense of the ambigu ambiguity of uh, the notion of force that um, emerges in that, in that book. Human beings are not different from other living creatures. Their basic situation, what Jasper's called basic situation, is the same. They devour one another, defend themselves, and escape. Man cannot do away with force. It would be absent only from a kingdom of angels. There is no law of nature or otherwise that dictates or guarantees a permanent and unambiguous victory over force. Rather, the effort falls squarely and indefinitely on the shoulders of men and women, whom existential freedom endows with the responsibility to do the work again and again, whenever a catastrophe, and this is Jasper's word, shatters the precarious order established. Such burden of responsibility is hard to bear. We like to disguise the facts of this basic situation. We want to take the recourse to force for the exception, for the abnormal, unhealthy aspect of certain conditions, and to regard peace, quiet, and nonviolence as normal. 
Now, it's true that human beings have at times managed to bring force under the control of law, but this accomplishment is inherently fragile and fleeting, for, again, in every catastrophe, man has to do it all over again. Actually, the, tens the tension between force and the law is one of the pivotal points of the future of mankind. Jasper says that a final victory of law over force is impossible. Even when it temporarily conquers force, law does so effectively only insofar as the threat to use force remains in the background. As much as human beings may try to contain force, it must always remain a presence among them. And here is a direct quotation. It is an illusion that the right could be relied upon to prevail. As truth needs exponents, the right needs power, a power that is not inherent in it. Yet, for all this discussion about the inevitability of violence and the ever-presence of, of, of force in this case, the effort to contain it is also indispensable. Let force be left to just destroy uh, mankind. Now, this work of countering force cannot only draw strength from the law, for we've seen that exclusive reliance on the law is inadequate, according to him, but rather from a broader sensitive consciousness of rights, whereby, and these are again Jasper's words, everyone is co-responsible when any wrong is done. And here, I think you see, you start seeing the relational um, elements. <clears throat> Force, in an even more defining human way than death, uh, another boundary situation, is a privileged ground for human beings to comprehend or at least embrace their humanity with authenticity and truthfulness. Authenticity and truthfulness are, tend to be buzzwords among existentialists of what, of the side of our existence that is truer and um, more noble. Uh, Yasser writes, sheer force has no limits, for it can destroy all life. But there is one limit, that destruction may manifest something more real than life and all force. We have this dimension of opening. Jaspers had clarified the dynamic of this manifestation, or the possibility for force to manifest something uh, more real than life and all force in his most strictly philosophical work, written in the early 1930s, three volumes of his philosophy. Uh, and here I'm venturing in strictly philosophical um, jargon, hopefully uh, not annoying. What is more real than life and all force, and may be disclosed by it, is, for Jaspers, existence. Existence is the dimension of our existence, again, think, what is accessed by being authentic and truthful, is the dimension of our existence which harbors our potential and our freedom. In his words, it is what in us is not, but can be, ought to be. Existence is that truthful, authentic self at the center of most existential theorizing. And it is disclosed precisely through a brave journey, through boundary situations we do not choose, but are ready to face. How do we do this, become this existence we potentially are, and most importantly, what political meaning does this have, considering it is force in the political realm that concerns us here? If I deal with the boundary situation as a spectator, the potential of the boundary is lost on me. It's not the case that any death, any struggle, 
automatically is a boundary situation. It has to be experienced in a certain way to become such. And Jaspers identifies three steps of a desultory process, not necessarily um, the steps, the pro progress through the steps is not necessarily guaranteed. Um, so that this loss will not occur, this loss of the boundary will not occur. First, I do look at my own existence as if it were a stranger's. I rely on generalities and universals in order to keep the situation, whether death, force, struggle, suffering, or guilt, at a distance. I dismiss it as alien to myself. I do not let it affect me, I guess. Um, you would call it denial in psychological terms. But because I cannot help finding myself in the situation, and because I still exist in situations, I find this to be, in Jasper's words, a place of loneliness. I then move to the second step, that of elucidation, again his word, in which I begin to see the boundary situations as possibilities that hit the essence of my being. The world, no longer a mere object, now contains, again his word, my shaken self. And I begin to fear for what the boundary situation may jeopardize. Again, you be, we begin here to see a sketch of the politics of boundary situations. I'm implicated in them, even if they don't affect me immediately and directly. The third step then leads me from grasping the boundary situation existentially, which occurs in the second step, to making it real by embracing its occurrence in my own existence. Here the sketch of the politics of boundary situations is integrated by something like a call to action. I'm embracing the situation and let it transform me, making me a new person capable of new deeds. That's free thread then this itinerary for similar boundary situation struggle. In talking about struggle in the more philosophical work of the early 1930s, Jaspers notes that even when we appear to be in a state of peace and quiet, we are merely enjoying the fruits of the struggle that others, the state, a specific social order, a certain distribution of resources, are waging on our behalf. Think first stage, stage of denial that struggle is even occurring. He identifies two pseudo-solutions to the situation of struggle, evading it or embracing it, whatever the cause or the objective. The first pseudo-solution requires listening to the gospel's call to resist not evil, doing without all living conditions that are based somewhere on the use of force against others. So I simply um, choose not to struggle at all. The opposite to the solution holds that ceaseless fighting is necessary and indeed it is what lends worth, truth and value to human existence. Both the unconditional rejection and the glorification of force imply a loss of the boundary situation because they imply a simple yes or no response to it. If followed consistently, the first solution would lead to the destruction of the individual or the group who gives up resistance whereas the second would lead to a lonely destroyer having ravaged everything around him. In the case of the boundary situation of struggle, therefore, the three steps I outlined earlier are represented first by an inability to recognize that beyond any appearance of peace and harmony lie specific configurations of power. In the second step, such recognition takes place. 
In the third, I'm compelled to abandon definitive judgments about struggle. I justify my rights only relatively and particularly. I do not take absolute positions about it and realize that decisions on what to do cannot come from general principles only. Between the harmonious peace of uh, meeting of souls and the violence waged for its own sake, we stand uh, in need of making political decisions, specific political decisions, with incomplete information. The journey through struggle, as through other boundary situations, is essentially a journey from solitude and abstractions to an acknowledgement of the reality and concreteness of others and of situations I cannot completely control or tame. A similar itinerary occurs in the boundary situation of suffering. While often a profoundly isolating experience, the reality of suffering is as definitive of the human condition as that of struggle. And once again, we find besides this reality of suffering, the impossibility of a simple yes or no answer to it. The experience of suffering is inevitable, but cannot be simply accepted. Suffering becomes a boundary situation when both inevitability and unacceptability are embodied in the attitude towards it. Then I do not try to evade the pain by trying to ignore it, or in the case of the suffering of other people, by keeping my distance, withdrawing when I realize the pain is incurable. I do not merely suffer the facts, but translate them into activity. And that's your um, hint to the third step uh, outlined above. I think with suffering, the relational and political potential of boundary situations comes to the fore in two ways. First, Jaspers ex explicitly says that the situation lived by another may become my own boundary situ situation. Jaspers talks of the possibility of embracing the boundary but not, by not evading another's pain keeping our distance, but rather letting this pain affect us deeply and change us. Second, what is politically crucial, this change means not merely suffering the facts, but translating them into activity. So when Jaspers talks about taking up my cross as a lot that has been cast for me, he does not exclude the empathy that may cause one to suffer with another because he or she suffers. So let me point to some of the political implications of a focus on boundary situations. They show the inadequacy of exclusive reliance on the intellect and its universal abstract principles in dealing with the dilemmas of practice. We can never exhaust the complexities of reality to fit into those principles, nor can we ever fully step out of our determined situation to examine reality from the outside. The way to cope with the dilemmas identified at the boundary, uh, as I've tried to um, show, is not by an appeal to the abstraction of general principles, though actually Jasper says not without them either. We cannot make political decisions without generalities, but so to speak, practice disfigures generalities to an extent that they are hardly recognizable when we need to rely on them at the decisive moments. Second, boundary situations suggest that there are elements of universality in the human condition, our shared ability to, actually our shared um, implication in those situations. But also that those elements of universality are disclosed by an engagement with the concrete, specific struggles and experiences that men and women have to confront 
everyone has to face death, struggle for survival and suffering, but everyone does so in its own way, in his or her own way. Now, if we eliminate these concrete struggles from our theorizing from the start, as I suggested um, many contemporary theorists do, we're left without any concrete ground to access these elements of universality and in danger of advisedly apply category that simply do not fit uh, a certain situation. Now, this um, implies a blurring of the distinction between politics and morality in Jaspers. Liberalism has, with considerable reason, warned us about dangers of mixing politics and morals. But if we keep in mind that change is not here forced from the outside, but must be autonomous and originates uh, within the individual, we can simply appreciate the emphasis on coherence and character that the demand for change implies. And I'm reminded um, of an interview that Noam Chomsky gave um, where he pointed out that it was common for people to come up to him after uh, his talks asking what they should be doing. And he would point out that they knew exactly what, they, what was to be done. It's just that they wanted sort of a theoretical hook to, um, to escape the simple responsibility uh, of doing precisely what they knew was to be done. Um, there is another more strictly political contribution of my reading of what I somewhat reluctantly call liberal existentialism. In general, the emphasis on the concrete experience of suffering does not bear simply on the highest levels of self-elucidation and changing man, but also at the level of practical politics. As students of communication, politicians and activists know very well, the impact of a dramatic personal story is far greater, longer lasting, and more likely to compel to action or affect public opinion than the use of statistics or generalities. And this was, by the way, a major element in the advancements of the human rights movement in the last 50 years. Um, and I think precisely at this time when suffering is easily manipulated, it's important to just inquire into its nature and um, into what it calls for. And since you've been so gracious in enduring this much political philosophy, I have pre-written this, but actually you have been gracious. <laughs> Let me end on a slightly more applied note. Part of what I'm getting at through this study of boundary situations is the negotiation of the tension between universality and concrete specificity that seems to guide the work of several human rights activists. It seems to me that the framework I suggest integrates a reading of their work as inspired by liberal principles, which is the standard reading, by highlighting certain elements typical of their work, which have been traditionally absent from the liberal tradition of theorizing. Specifically, the personalization of suffering, the attention to context, uh, activists just cannot make their case in overly abstract terms because they wouldn't be effective, uh, they wouldn't have an audience, um, and they they would jeopardize their status with, um, with um, countries they're monitoring. So attention to context, the importance of character and ethical considerations in the work of politics, things like coherence. Activists do build their uh, power in a reputation for fairness and equanimity. Um, and, the, and essentially the inadequacy of exclusively focusing on institutional macro approach to the searching of political solutions. 
And I think all of these um, really deserve a lot more attention than they're usually given. And that's all. Maybe uh, 25 minutes for some questions, so we have to vacate the room a little bit after one. But uh, we'll be uh, have plenty of time until then. I have two completely contradictory views in my head. Both are along with the ones more right. This issue of force always being necessary uh, of an absence of violence in the background. How much is that simply trivially true in the sense that uh, we also observe in any particular moment that there's very little violence happening between people? Mm-hmm. Um, as an empirical matter, maybe you could disabuse me of that too. I mean, how do you measure whether or not there's a lot of violence mm-hmm. between people or not? Usually, to stipulate that there is or there isn't. Mm-hmm. And how would we know? How can we, how can we possibly ever know whether or not there's a lot? of violence mm-hmm. among human beings or very little. Mm-hmm. And it all depends upon what your expectations are going into the inquiry, how much violence you expect mm-hmm. to be between autonomous agents or agents that mm-hmm. aren't uh, uh, agents that are physically capable at all times mm-hmm. and agents that no violence taking place mm-hmm. why is because there's force in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one question. On the other hand, I have a lot of you that there's always violence. Right? There's violence taking place in this room right now. Mm-hmm. There, you know, the radical view is that um, you know, not just all speech acts of violence, but thinking itself is violence, theorizing is violence, mm-hmm. uh, interpretation is violence. Mm-hmm. So the, the violence is ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure which of those which of those views uh, I adhere to more, mm-hmm. uh, whether both of them are equally true. Um. Well, it seems that like in a in a immediate response would be that it seems you have when you said that there was no force at all, you were uh, implying I think physical force, and when you said that there is force everywhere, you were implying something different than physical force. Well, that... I'm force. Okay. And the threat mm-hmm. of force. I mean, you, you originally said that I think it was the Oscars you were quoting that uh, there's always the threat of force behind all social mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that fundamental uh, norms, mm-hmm. habit, routine would never be enough without the threat of force. Mm-hmm. And um, that might indeed be true. Well, my, my question is whether it's trivially true, though, because in fact, uh, for most people, most of the time, they're not actually thinking about force when they're not engaging in violence with other people. Mm-hmm. But already, it's completely unthinkable for them. It's unthinkable anyone in this room to use violence against anyone else in this mm-hmm. room right now. And it's not because we're sitting here making special calculations about how much force there is waiting for us. We don't do it. Mm-hmm. But Columbus police. The Columbus police. <laughs> Rick might come out of his office, maybe who knows. So what, what relevance is to make the statement that you always have to have force when in fact it looks like you have to have air. Well, um... Actually, add that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't believe it. It's not that possible. <laughs> it's the most murderous societies in all of history, including studies by anthropologists, there's a chance of being killed in a homicide about one in a thousand per year. Mm-hmm. And that's the worst it ever gets mm-hmm. uh, in, in most totally chaotic, unpoliced, mm-hmm. uh, broken-down societies. 
Mm -hmm. uh, more normally is one in 10,000, very often one in 100,000. Mm -hmm. So what you want to say to society is, boy, there's hardly any violence, despite the fact that Columbus police is, is or is not present. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree with uh, clearly uh, with uh, with, uh, with what you just said. Um, having said this, I just think that on the other hand, there are places where violence is a, is actually indeed a very concrete presence, and you know one can think well, of in a trivial sense, well, one chance in a thousand. Well, one chance in a thousand. If you take the aggregate the aggregate of the world for each person in the world the chances is one in one thousand, but there are undeniably areas of the world where that, where that chance There's never been a society that's much worse than that. In the middle of a battlefield, perhaps, but uh, well, then let no society in which the homicide rate is more than one in a thousand, ever. How about? One in a thousand is not very good odds. That's bad. Well, we're just talking about the issue of scale, right? So if you measure it in the late 1980s, in Georgia or in the United States in particular, mm -hmm. one thousand. But if you go to the middle of the crap wars in Atlanta, mm -hmm. the people who live there and never leave that city, mm -hmm. it's gonna be a lot more than one thousand. Well, but she has to be more than one in a thousand cops now. But she's getting yeah, a universal philosophical she's a universal philosophical being, right? She's not claiming that she's a philosophy that obtains in Atlanta or the crack board, mm -hmm. and another philosophy that obtains for all the rest of the world. She's claiming she has a universal philosophy that accounts for well, I mean, I think there's a difference in scale, but I think, and I will stand by this claim, I think that the threat of violence is indeed ever-present, and we are constantly afraid. I mean, that's just a very simple reality. It's a reality for me, who live in, you know, fancy Worthington, uh, that I, I could be the subject of violence at any minute. It's not that wild uh, <laughs> that, that something could happen uh, to me. And, I mean, I realize, and, and I think that's partly the reason why uh, I, I've seen many American academics as neglecting the phenomenon. There is a very, uh, very real reason why these questions are addressed less here than in other places. Uh, but you know, even in a country like Italy in the 70s, it was actually very explosive political situations. And these situations occur, um, you know, all over the world. So I, I think again, I mean, I would make. Uh, a claim of gradation, but I would say um, I would say that there is uh, there is this ever present threat, and even most importantly, I think the the normative reason behind the claim that violence is there and is to a certain extent ineliminable is actually that demanding that that threat disappear is futile and has very pernicious political consequences. It's there. I mean, there's, you can, you can, you know, enact emergency measures, you can go to preemptive war, you can do all, you can take all sorts of steps, but that threat is simply there and will stay there. And, you know, to a certain extent, it's really a matter of, of how you look at the world. And I think there are, again, merits in not considering um, violence as, you know, ever present. But I also think that um, you can definitely see it as an ever-present threat, if not ever-present reality. And I think that there, is, there are important normative implications in saying that this threat is just there to stay. I don't want to belabor the topic, but did you make a distinction of between the ever-present threat and reality of your talk? Was your talk actually driven by the, the reality of it? And it seems to me that while everybody lives under all kinds of ever-present threats, you can get your bike walking across the street, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. dangerous. Mm -hmm. But if I mean, it seems to me that you 
get you get some empirical lift, right? If you can suggest that lots of societies will make Rwanda, for example, mm -hmm. item, right? But, mm -hmm. but if you're just stuck with the one in a thousand, even in the most disorderly, most chaotic places, you're mm -hmm. I, I just oh. want to be sure that I just want to yes, 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 yes. Very fair question. Okay, yes. out of violence society mm -hmm. where death is reality, people are getting stabbed on a regular basis, whatever, and the ever present threat is because they're ever present threat for lots of things. Yes. Right, which we all build into our, you know, we mm -hmm. all make calculations about, you know, am I going to walk on a, my bathroom floor without slippers on when it's mm -hmm. wet or something? I mean, these are, there are all kinds of things out there, and it seems to me mm -hmm. a distinction between that and. Yes. One of the questions lurking actually behind the, the talk, and that is a little more developed in the dissertation itself, is the question of intervention uh, by powerful political actors to uh, stop the violence and the, you know, the cases in which such intervention is warranted or not. And so the, the, there is a distinction between the ever-present threat of violence and the ever-present reality of violence. The ever-present reality of violence is the experience of, say, civil war-torn countries, okay? Now, the ever-present threat of violence is what allows people, call it the center or uh, the powerful center, to actually um, identify themselves to a certain extent and achieve that sort of common ground that, um, it is my claim, boundary situations um, constitute. So in a way, uh, the ever-present the ever threat of violence is what triggers that first step that I was talking about, the ability to see ourselves as implicated somehow in the violence that's happening and possibly in the, step from, in the, in, in the, the passage from the second step to the third step, which uh, also calls to action. So I, I agree, it was probably not, uh, didn't come out as clear because I um, had not developed this aspect, but that's, that's where things stand. So thanks for the opportunity to clarify that. It sometimes reminds me of uh, <coughs> something that uh, uh, Washington was talking about, about uh, uh, disability and, uh, and uh, risk of disability and insurance. So basically, even though the reality of disability or the, or the reality of, uh, of, of suffering or, you know, or having injuries and so on only occurs to some of us, but somehow we have an insurance market that allows us to uh, given the ever-present uh, threat of potential disabilities or injuries to, to prevent future, uh, future realities of, of such, or at least to, to, to alleviate future realities of such situations by buying insurance. Now, what, what is, uh, what, is uh, uh, what seems to me to be um, different here is that when you talk about, when you talk about violence, there isn't such an insurance, and the state, in, in some sense, the most practical, practical thing to, uh, that that could come from this would be to say uh, the, the the very simple, um, very simple uh, metaphor that rational choice theorists could think about uh, for uh, you know what would be what should be the the overriding principle uh, behind, for example, something like uh, like an international criminal court that you. If you have another chapter on, but uh, would be you know we have to think of how to provide such insurance and, and how can we how can we uh, think of providing such an insurance if uh, people don't uh, don't have that threat if, if they have it they will they will start thinking about it if they don't have it and if they are if they are uh, pushed towards not having it then they will 
they will underestimate this drop and they will not buy some sweet That's kind of a, like a Rothschild. Rosianization of the value situation in terms of, you know, the these important, yeah, veil of ignorance. Yes, Alex. Um, I just want to see if I understand your arguments are in the context of universal jurisdiction and international law. And I know that you write about the ICC, so I'm tempted just to say talk about universal jurisdiction, mm -hmm. but I'll try to word it in the, in the form of a question. So I guess when I, to me, the practical problem with the concept of universal jurisdiction is that. It sounds nice that we should care what's happening somewhere else and we should apply the same principles. But as a reality, you know, when I read today that you know, probably more like 300,000 that died in Darfur, it just seems so abstract. Mm -hmm. you know, Darfur might as well be a, a region of Middle Earth or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and so you really need to, you need to care about others and you need to, like you said, step outside of yourself. But is it because I have violence in my life Mm -hmm. the, the threat of violence in my life that I care about what's happening in Darfur, mm -hmm. which might make something like enforcing the original jurisdiction possible. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> well, it's, uh, it's, uh, thanks for bringing up the points. Um, I do address the question of universal jurisdiction clearly in the in the chapter on the ICC and actually throughout the the, the chapter on guilt as well. Um, universal jurisdiction is problematic, I think, under this framework. Um, it's not necessarily something that is negative or that we should do away with and, and, and just take off our political concerns, but it's because of the, of the question of the emphasis on specificity and uh, context. Um, it, 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 it's just a difficult concept. If you understand universal jurisdiction uh, as the right of one country to try anyone in a different country, now this is this is where the ICC comes in for me. The ICC is actually is actually a permanent court with relatively clearly established codes, um, which have been drafted by a multiplicity of countries. Uh, multiplicity of the, the, these codes have been negotiated negotiated by all the relevant people to whom the uh, ICC applies. So the take on, on universal jurisdiction, or my take of, 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 on universal jurisdiction drawing on this work is that uh, going the ICC route is a much, is a much better idea. And also, um, even as far as the ICC is concerned, um, I do want to put an emphasis on the limits of a purely legal approach to this. So my route is actually going uh, from, you know, what you said is the threat of violence in my, uh, in my life or my access to the boundary situation of other people uh, pushes me to do something. Well, that something is not exclusively, uh, you know, calling upon laws to do the work, but it's something, you know, um, more, in a way, grassroots politically grounded. And the re but on the other hand, the reason why I do talk about the ICC is that I do want to show that these kind of micro levels and, and dynamics do have an impact in you know, uh, macro international relations. And, and in the chapter that I have on the ICC, I really talk about um, the ICC as born out of, um, um, out of 
activist um, actions, and, and, and I really highlight the role that these people had um, in, in the building and in the, the getting started of the, of the court. So um, definitely not simply universal jurisdiction, or at least you know, highlighting the, the political complications with universal jurisdiction, I'd say. Yes? I guess I have a question about force, because uh, I was thinking about, um, for one, what brought me here today, but I think I had some of the same frustrations that you had with the period, but mm -hmm. really, it didn't really matter to articulate how much I think what you said. But also, with me, of course, now for you, is force limited to that which those practices which are enacted by the state? Because mm -hmm. um, to me, it seems there's a whole constellation of, of kinds of force, right? Mm -hmm. and the violence did occur in this room. We're not waiting for the clumps of people to get here. If someone starts beating on her, we are all going to very forcefully take over that person, right? Uh, this is not to mention the, the times in societies when there have been sort of paramilitary groups, there have been non-state sanctioned or state-sponsored terrorist groups like Ku Klux Klan that have acted very forcefully and been even perhaps more present than those state institutions, right? In being forceful and in, uh, I should say, Actually, I've been I've been trying to pin uh, down Jasper's on on these questions, and it's not uh, it's not very easy to do because um, he writes about these things uh, at you know. Uh, 1958, 1930, so a long, long time uh, passed. And it's not clear whether, for example, the most obvious uh, tension is between the demonstration of struggle, which, as he calls it in the 30s, and force, as he calls it in the late 50s. Um, I would say that force, he's, he was heavily influenced by Max Weber, for example. So force, for him, tends to be um, the force of the state. On the other hand, because the focus of this uh, Future Mankind book is actually the threat of the nuclear holocaust, um, he also talks about the force yielded by, um, wielded by the different states against one another. That's force, too. Um, so, I mean, in very general terms, I think it's, it's, uh, it's acceptable to think about force as what is employed in order to guarantee a certain kind of order, um, whether, you know, and then it's mostly the order of the state, but it could also be um, the order that someone else, uh, someone else wants to um, impose. Whereas struggle is more, in the, in the question of, of in the understanding of struggle, the emphasis is, is mostly on the interaction between, there is, it's, it's as if there was not a, a, a clear winner in, in the struggle, so the emphasis is really on uh, you know, on the on the contest between uh, and among forces, rather than um, than the attempt to impose uh, order. But I think um, I think that any group that demands to exert control on another in a certain way um, can be captured under the umbrella of force. But I, the way I I work around all of these. Um, 
possible ambiguities is to, um, you know, try and, and define, uh, try and, and actually put more clarity in Jasper's work than, than, than actually um, exists. It's not even, I mean, even the question of physical force versus symbolic force or, you know, those, those kinds of things is not extremely well um, thought through in his work. So, um, but I think, you know, asking the reasons why there are these kind of confusions is interesting in itself, and, and often reading, sometimes there's just nothing there, but sometimes it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's thought-provoking, I think. Yes, I think so. I mean, political theorists are a pretty eclectic and disorderly bunch. So, uh, you know, what means absolute violence for one theorist may not necessarily mean uh, absolute violence for another, exactly in the same terms. On the other hand, I was quoting uh, Arendt when I talked about it, and for Arendt, um, yes, that's I, that, that's exactly what you're getting at. And for her, um, so it's it's a, it's complete absence of any kind of response from victim of violence, of the possibility of uh, response from the victim of violence. She had in mind totalitarianism and specifically, you know, the condition of the Jew in a concentration camp. That's absolute violence. There's practically no um, response that is possible for, um, for the other, um, for the other um, party. Um, and actually, it's interesting, um, Jasper talks about uh, nonviolence, for example, in The Future of Mankind, and uh, he has very um, enormous admiration for, for Gandhi, but he also notes that the only situation in, who, in, in which nonviolence can be conceivably an effective tool is precisely the condition where um, uh, there's no absolute violence there is some kind of exchange and some kind of culture on the other um, side that's, that's ready to uh, at least listen or have the germ of some kind of negotiations as, in his opinion, existed between, um, between India and both objectively that only one in a thousand people 
Yes, I, I'm not sure that I would put exactly in those terms for one reason. Well, let me just super briefly uh, tell you about the path to this to, to Jaspers, actually. I started out working on um, Schleier's notion of putting cruelty first as a possible alternative to cosmopolitanism geared towards the avoidance of cruelty rather than substantive conceptions of human nature or um, things of that sort. Um, so... So definitely I am trying to ground some kind of constant element of the human condition that could conceivably constitute the ground for a measure of solidarity um, across, across countries. That's definitely the case. On the other hand, the reason why I wouldn't necessarily call it cosmopolitanism is that I do think that the fact of starting with concrete instances of violence, so actually looking at one specific violent situation, rather than, you know, um, violence in abstract terms, uh, does carry with it implications as to what will be done about the violence. So I'm not, say, hypothetically going to the violent situation thinking, okay, he, uh, human beings have this, this, and that right, and, and so this is what should be done. Right, but I'm, I'm, you know, in a way, it's almost some kind of consequentialist uh, reasoning. But I, I go there, and my goal, um, my goal is to um, reduce or possibly interrupt the violence. And given this goal, and given the fact that I know that there is this layer, possible layer of criminality among human beings, uh, what would achieve that goal best in that particular situation? Uh, which, again, I, I, I really see many activists as doing. Uh, but that element of specificity, I guess, would be what's, um, was, what, what would make the cosmopolis problematic, because it's not necessarily cosmopolis, but it's, it's a, it's a um, yeah, sort of solidarity among poly, poly, I guess. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. I don't know that we've had a chance to meet on the No, we haven't. I can see your talk. Yes, I can see your talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this? True. You have thousands of people. Right? You have thousands of people. 